Tony, if you could leave our listeners today with an essential message or idea about how to create great teams that could inform the rest of their careers, what might that be? So what I've learned, I think, is to see a team not just as a set of individual members, but to actually look at them as a, an entity, if you like a single entity or a group of entities where the whole is worth potentially so much more than the sum of its parts. So the challenge for a leader is to actually coach the team so that they discover that unlocked potential. Hello, our guest today is Tony Llewellyn, a specialist in interpersonal dynamics and the effectiveness of project teams. Tony has spent over 30 years working on major projects, at one point as a partner in construction specialist Davis Langdon, and later as a director at consulting giant Acom, before focusing on his passion of leadership and team development. Tony has written three successful books on and around the topic of project team mechanics and has developed his own team coaching methodology based on his extensive research. I'm Robert Diggings, and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all the joys and perils of bringing people together. We have one simple aim, to help you create world-class teams wherever you are. So if you're a leader, a manager, an HR professional, a coach, consultant or trainer, we're making this podcast for you. In our conversation today, Tony explains why you should see your team as a single entity, the importance of slowing down so you can speed up later, and how anybody, regardless of their role, can adopt a team coaching philosophy. As the saying goes, a leader is only as good as their team, and that means hearing, seeing, including and engaging with each and every team member. After all, a team is by its very definition a group of people working together, an entity perhaps, in itself. In light of this, what does it mean to be a good team leader, and what steps or framework can you adopt to improve, motivate and strengthen your team? Well, if anybody can tell us, it's Tony. And I started by asking him about this idea that a team is a thing, an actual entity, and what the benefits of thinking of teams in this way are. The key to thinking about a team as an entity is that one moves beyond individual personalities and starts to think and look at the team as a combined personality, a combined set of skills, a great believer in cognitive diversity and this ability to tap into not just what you see in your team, but all those things that you don't see, whether you have experienced team members, inexperienced team members. Study after study shows that there is always more potential to be had, and it's actually how can you work with that entity to start to bring out the different thoughts, ideas, the creativity, the energy that is going to be the thing that makes the difference, particularly when you're working in a a complex or in a certain environment. And is that something that's relatively unusual for leaders to 
maybe intuit that that's the best way to relate to teams? And, and is it something that MBAs, for instance, would teach that this is how to look at teams? Well, uh, there's no shortage of articles or material that says, you know, you've, we've got to create a psychologically safe environment. We've got to, to lead with using greater softer skills. But the point that they miss is that if that's the what, the tricky bit is the how. Just what is it that you actually do as a leader to achieve those things? And so, so it's about unpacking the actual what might happen on a day-to-day basis and how team meetings may be run or how team even one-to-ones may happen in relation to the team. I actually think it's a little bit more than that. I think it goes a bit deeper than that. And I think that it's, it hesitate to use a grand word like philosophy. But actually, the, what I've started to observe in successful team leaders, um, whether they're leading small teams or even you know, very large teams of teams, is that difference between the command and control type of philosophy of directing and, and trying to organise and control everything from long-term planning to day-to-day activity. The shift instead is to a much more of a, a reactive. So rather than command and control, I like the phrase sense and react. One's continually sensing what's going on what's happening in the environment around us and how can I help my team adapt quickly so that we are responding in, in, in an agile way to what's going on around us. But to, to take your point, though, about it being an entity, what is the difference in orientation that a leader of a team would have in relating to the team as an entity as opposed to a group of separate individuals? What might that look like? So I think that when one's looking at, you know, the, the, the archetypal team leader has a certain number of people in the team and will often look at the capacity and capability of that team depending on each individual member that's there, how long they've been in the team and what's or in the industry, how experienced they are, what are their personal abilities. When you look at the team as a as a random, more coherent entity, you're looking at it as right, here is a, a connected series of individuals who all bring different strengths and blind spots to the team all have their own different circumstances but what happens when they're connecting what happens when they're working together and clicking are they generating ideas are they talking are they finding alternative ways to solve a particular problem from a leadership point of view looking at as an entity it's saying well how is this working how are the dynamics going are we are we growing as a team are we able to apply and adapt all the ideas and tools and techniques that are going to improve our ability to perform. Is this a a theoretical position or is there a metaphysical aspect to this for you? Is there actually a unseen phenomenon that we could call an entity that lies beneath the functioning of the team in your view? Or is this just a useful kind of theoretical approach to take for a leader? Well, I mean, there, there are an enormous number of studies, nearly always done in, in, in the United States, that look at team success. And the academic perspective is, are we getting process gain or process loss? Now, for a poorly led team, where the whole is less than some of the parts, you get process loss because the team isn't performing. They're getting in each other's way. Minor politics or even major politics are disrupting behaviour. There's too many distractions. What we're talking about is is trying to find ways of achieving process gain, where individuals are finding that their 
starting a problem, somebody else is helping them. I mean, this is really important when it comes to team resilience. Again, resilience, a word of the 21st century. Helping a team learn to survive is one thing. But when you get it right, when you do get strong process gain, teams really actually start to thrive in that environment. I bought a copy of your first book in lockdown. I think it came out in 2017, so it's about six years ago that you you released that, uh, the Team Coaching Toolkit. And in that, you have 55 tools and techniques for creating brilliant teams. And I know that your orientation is particularly around project teams and how teams connect with other teams. Just going back to, to that first book, what would you say now would be the kind of headline ideas that that book contained that would be useful for our listeners today? So the book talks about what is team coaching as a concept, as an idea, as a process, and then sets out a number of techniques that would underpin that process. And then because what I think of is it's tempting to talk about team coaching in mechanical terms, and I do strongly believe that there are there's a lot of mechanical process that can be easily applied. But one's got to be careful not to be too prescriptive about it, because every team is different. And so what I tried to then create was a wide range of tools that would become part of a framework, something that a team leader could dip in and out of. They were looking for ideas for a team development session, uh, how to start a meeting, how to finish a meeting, um, or just some good ideas around working in a different way. You have you have created your own team coaching model and methodology. It consists of five key stages, uh, one of which is resilience that you mentioned just now, but that the five in order are assess the systemic environment, two, set up, uh, three, communication, four, building resilience, and five, improvement and learning. Now, I, I imagine we could go into a great deal of depth on each of them, but what would you say about, firstly, those five and how you arrived at them? And then perhaps we could look and pick out two or three particular okay. things to talk about. So one of the, the key things around, if I talk about the team coaching philosophy, it's a fairly well-established phrase, you know, that if you want to get something done, slow down, first of all. So that's the idea, slow down so you can later speed up. And I look at that as being absolutely fundamental to to what one is trying to do differently so rather than getting up early or running faster take time to pause and think but take time with the team to pause and think and so the model emerged really from looking at the works of other writers and trying to think well how would this apply to somebody setting up let's say for example a cross-functional team so you've given been given a task perhaps business critical importance you assemble a team um, from different departments around the organisation, how do you start? Do you just crack on with the, the programme and this is what we've got to get done and let's all rush into it? So my argument is no, move the other way, slow down. So number one, step one, what kind of mess have we gotten into? What's going on in this organisation? Why are we doing this project? What is it that we need to do? What, you know, who are the stakeholders? How are we going to get aligned and that then moves us into the setup process. And setup is fundamentally about alignment, alignment to a common cause. And as the book goes through, there are a range of very practical steps that one not could do, but should do. But when I talk about mechanics, there are some things that every team, every new team really should do because study after study has proven them to dramatically improve what comes afterwards. We then move into, from setup, we then move into 
day-to-day delivery. And so the coaching role then moves much more into all the different aspects of communication, which one could actually call engagement. How do you keep your team engaged in the work, in the task? Now, eventually, certainly in the modern environment, the pressures of budgets, program, politics, environmental change, whatever else it is, start to wear teams down, particularly for projects that move over a prolonged period. And so one of the essential roles as team coach is to help build resilience into the team, help the team learn to support each other. And then finally, and again in the modern world where things change so fast, the ability to continually review and reflect and adapt needs a degree of leadership. We all know it's a good idea, but it takes, takes coaching leadership to help teams work through that process. So that's the, the outline model. And it was, was a relatively convenient way of breaking out of the, um, the 55 tools into some kind of sections that um, would make it a bit easier to reference. And if we were to look at where things go wrong and the model is attempting to steer a much better course, where in, in, in those five stages do you see most either difficulty or, or potential failure in teams that aren't paying enough attention to this kind of process or methodology? It's all about the setup. In the end, it's all about the setup. Now, why doesn't that happen Something that I, I have termed the collaboration fallacy, and it really taps into, it was an observation from reading the work by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Stavisky about the planning fallacy. Now, the planning fallacy was their observation that humans tend to be very poor at planning ahead, so, and we continually underestimate the time and resources required for a particular project, whether it's small or large, despite the evidence available to us despite our own experience, we continue to be very poor at planning. And what I've observed in teams where things go wrong is that the time wasn't invested early on enough to get the the relationships right, to get the ways of working agreed, the team's rules of engagement, an understanding of our stakeholder requirements, etc., etc. So why isn't that done? Well, it takes time. And there's always a rush. Every project, internal or external, starts too late. It was needed yesterday. It's never properly resourced. We haven't got time for this, Tony. We just need to press on. We need to get a proverbial shovel into the ground and get going. And actually, that team stuff will be fine. We're all grown-ups. We're all rational, sensible human beings. Of course, that's fine. But of course, we all have a different interpretation of what's rational and sensible. So if we were to stay with your project team where you're bringing together a cross-functional group of people to work on something in the way that you've described, how much time needs to be spent on those first two things, the assessing the systemic environment and the setup? So the assessing the systemic environment can be often little more than what I call a cup of tea meeting, which I cover in the book. And a cup of tea meeting is, the crucial thing about it is a chat. It's an informal chat. No minutes taken necessarily. It's getting a, a group who are at the vanguard of, of the task, project, program, whatever it is. Sit down, sit around and say, right, well, what have we got ourselves into? What is going on? Now, that might just take an hour, two hours. Does everyone need to be there? The more that are there, the more people have been part of that conversation, the more people have heard what's going on. And the thing about the assessment, assessment phase is it's, it's getting people tuned into, right, 
we're nearly ready to go. So things haven't started yet. It's not the go button hasn't been pressed. The go button then is, right, we need to set the team up. Now, my professional preference is to have a two days with the team so that we can spend time looking at not just the team development stuff, but also some of the technical, some of the programming stuff. And we mix the two together. That's when I'm working as an external coach, working with a new team. But it can be done in a day. It can be done in half a day. The tools, you know, one can work through some of the key tools fairly quickly. The trouble with fairly quickly means that they're brushed over. And the secret to team engagement is that the more one can co-create a set of rules, more that one involves everybody in that thought process, the more likely you're going to have team buy-in. And that's the key to getting a team rolling and you know coming out of the starting blocks fairly quickly. So let's just explore this from another viewpoint, which is like in an ideal world. If a team leader engaged you or wanted to work with their own team themselves and had it was a perfect world and there was no need to get a shovel in the ground until all of the setup had been done as well as it possibly could be, what kind of time frame might that be? So it's about scale and it would be the difference between, let's say, an archetypal perfect seven-man group who are going to become a seven-man team. Um, one could have a very effective day spent working through the different ideas, tools, techniques that are just specifically around relationship building and relationship planning. But I know of a program that was spending upwards of two billion where they spent six months. So, you know, it, it is proportional to the time available, but the, the more complex the environment, the larger the number of people going to be engaged, the more important it is to actually make that investment. And of course, asking a project team to wait six months before they can start requires a lot of patience. Yes, and a lot of commitment to, well, and an understanding of the value of that time, the, of what the, the kind of, you know, we're slowing down to speed up kind, of, kind of approach, which um, requires a strength of character and a nerve in some respects in, 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 the, in the fast delivery world that, that you've alluded to. So what I have found is not surprisingly perhaps there are, there are some people who naturally want to go to the, this is the feels right for them mm. and they will fight very hard for that space because they have a, na a more natural sense and react style they haven't been taught it it's not something that they've been mandated it's just how it makes sense to them far more difficult for the archetypal command and control or predict and control leader who is used to delivering stuff under pressure or his or her version of delivering stuff under pressure. Do you have a, a view on what the ideal number of people would be in that one-day session or in, in those set-up uh, meetings and sessions? Seven is the perfect number. If you want to get a full discussion where, where there's one discussion going among seven people, once you move into eight, the dynamics shift a bit. What the studies on team size say is typically six to eight, but that, you know teams don't work like that. You know, we, we're not really organised to go, oh, right, we're over eight people, right, we need to, to subdivide. What happens is teams will naturally subdivide by themselves so that once you get to a team size of 10, 11, 12, what I've seen is quite often subgroups will be formed and you might find two or three people will go off and they'll spend time together and then maybe two others and there might be a, a core 
of six or seven left. And each of those will start to develop over time. And that is the natural evolution of teams. You know, one of the things to acknowledge is that you know, teams are rarely static. So we were talking about a project team that was coming together for, a, and I know this is a particular focus of your practice and area of your expertise, but if we just pivot to the idea of an intact maybe exec team or senior team that isn't a project team as such. It's an ongoing entity that will, as long as the business is there and doing the thing it's doing, will need this team. How does what you've said so far map onto that kind of team? Is it all the same or are there differences? Yeah, so the difference with this, so it's taken an intact team and say, well, oh, right. You know, so, so a lot of the listeners will have been involved in some form or other of, of senior team development. Where does team coaching come into that? So I would say it, it, in terms of the, the component parts, the alignment process, the assessing the environment process, these are all, all the same. They're just adapted for the circumstances of the organisation. The difference is one of tone. It's probably the way that the conversation is facilitated so that what one is trying to do in that kind of, of coaching process is to draw out from the individuals this idea of, you know, okay, so where are, we, where are interdependencies? And one of the challenges around senior leadership teams is where is their allegiance to the leadership team or to their own individual teams? And so, again, spend quite a lot of time working with senior groups to try and get them to talk about their interdependency and start to understand that performance, organisational performance, really rests on the ability to, can they improve their horizontal connections rather than just working in their individual silos? Yes, and and many, many teams that I've worked with over the last five or ten years will often tell me at the beginning of the process, uh, through a conversation that they're having with themselves as well as with me, the conclusion being we're not a team, we're a group of functional experts, which is a great insight, although it then, the, the insight, of course, raises many, many questions around the kinds of things that you've just said, which is, is this my team or is, it, is my team the one that I lead? The, the silo nature of our business perhaps is like reflected in the way we're functioning as a team. And can we change the way we're functioning as a team without changing the way the organisational functions? Uh, so it's quite, there's a lot, a lot in that idea, isn't there? So I would come back to mechanics. You, you asked before, what's the difference? Does the team coaching toolkit apply? And I would say, yes, absolutely. For any group whether they're a natural team, a permanent team, or just a work group that's coming together. It's about relationships. How do they build the relationships where they understand each other in a deeper way, that are able to understand each other's pressures and problems? And the toolkit is designed to actually help teams slowly, well, sometimes quite quickly, work through a number of different processes that just facilitate that capability. So can you un unpack this idea of mechanics? Uh, more for us. What are the elements that you include when you when you say that, and uh, why is it so yeah. important so, to you? A little bit careful when one talks about mechanics, because that implies that that there is a mechanical or a, me a strict methodology that one has to work through. So what I'm talking about when I say mechanics is that there are a series of activities, processes, methodologies that, if applied consistently, throughout an organisation and throughout a team's life cycle 
bearing in mind that life cycle is continually being recreated every time a new team member joins, then that application is going to give the team a much greater chance of success. And coming back to the coaching concept, it's all around, right, as a team leader, how are you using these tools and, and processes? Are you dictating this is what you must do? Or what is your role much more of a facilitator where you're facilitating a discussion, you're facilitating processes so that the team become engaged in, in a much deeper and more effective way? Can you give us some examples of, of what fits into this idea of mechanics from your perspective? What might that actually be or look like? So we talk about team setup. So there, you know, there's a mechanical process that says, right, why are we here? It's a question that, that needs to be asked, not to be told, okay, guys, we are here because. The question is why are we here? And that's why we are here. Now, as individuals, why are you here? What do you want from this? What do you hope to get from this experience? It's not just about being paid to do it. We all, if you want to actually draw out from somebody their intrinsic motivation, then for everybody to hear each individual's intrinsic motivation is going to make a difference. What are our rules of engagement? And what do I mean by that? Things like, are we going to turn up meetings on time? If we're, having, if we're on a Teams meeting, do we have our cameras on? Do we all stay to the end of the meeting? Do we, when we sit around the table, do we open our computers or not? A whole range of things that one could say, well, uh, they're bad team behaviours or good team behaviours. Successful teams, time after time, it's been shown successful teams work out those details for themselves. So they co-create them, codify them, and that's how things work here. Are you saying, uh, just, just help me, are you saying it doesn't matter what they decide as long as they have discussed it and made a decision collectively? Yeah. So a team could go, no, we're not going to arrive at, at meetings on time. We're not worried about that. And if you need to leave early, that's also okay. Are you saying that that's no worse or better than a team that goes, no, everyone needs to be here and we all stay till the end? <laughs> so I'm smiling now thinking, uh, trying to imagine a team that would say, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fine to turn it whenever you feel like it. But there might be circumstances where that might happen. What I'm, I'm more interested in is the mechanical process of co-creation. I love so, it. So yeah. that time has to be spent. And that's this is the tricky bit. So from, from a team leader's point of view, containing that sense of urgency I'm going, right, now we're going to work through things, things slowly. And my role as, as team coach here is to draw out, is to ask the questions and actually not just ask the questions, but really listen to what the answers, to what, you know, what people are saying. And what's the difference between co-creation, your, your word from just a moment ago, and collaboration, which gets used a lot in the team process kind of discussion and coaching conversation? Okay, so you've, you've touched on another hot button of mine here, that the collaboration is a word that I think is dramatically overused. To me, a team, a team that has been formed and is a genuine team doesn't need to collaborate. They just need to do what they need to do. Collaboration is conceptually, it only makes sense to me when one's talking about working with people outside of your team. More often than not, collaboration comes up when things are difficult. That's when you require collaboration. Up to that point, you can cooperate with another team quite comfortably. As soon as you get skin in the game, that's when collaboration is requirement. And what do I mean by that? I mean that things are difficult. We're going to have to put extra resources in. Are we prepared to do that? Well, yes, we're prepared to do it because for the long-term relationship or to achieve the long-term benefit, we're looking, working with this other team. We need to, to actually collaborate with them. That's my definition. Now, other people will have a different view on it, but what does it mean? 
I'm not sure often anyone can look at a successful team and say, what did you do? And they say, yeah, no, we, we collaborated. They talk about what happened in the past as opposed to what they're currently doing at any particular moment in time. And that troubles you. To, I'm curious about this. What, what's the genesis of your the conclusion you've come to around collaboration? How, when did that first come up for you and why have you chosen? Well, it, when you get a lot of people having to work together, particularly in a project environment, now that could be an inter, a major internal project or an external project where you're, you're pulling in teams from different organisations. But there's a, a conversation that will start at the, at the beginning of the project that says we're going, to, we're going to collaborate as if by making that statement, it's going to happen. Just simply, we're going to collaborate. Right, you've been told you will collaborate without any real thought given to you ever how and why. And this how is, is, is the tricky bit. So what one finds with naturally collaborative teams is they've gone through the mechanics. They've gone through the process. They've, they understand the challenges of alignment. They know how to stay engaged. They build resilience into their relationships. I mean, for what it's worth, for me, the difference, say, between collaboration and cooperation would be that a collaboration would mean that I would be willing to take a hit or a loss in service of either you or the team as a whole. Yeah. I kind of would say that's the that's the difference. Does, but, does fundamental that... difference because so it's not to confuse with with cooperation because we can quite comfortably cooperate with with each other, with other teams, with other organizations if there's no cost to us. You know, it's just a matter of, of goodwill. Yeah, yeah, fine, we'll, co we'll cooperate. As soon as it starts to be, ah, right, yes or no, but what this means is this is going to cost you more. Well, are we prepared to pay that? Mm. Yeah, because the long-term gain is worth it. And that's to me, is the fundamental difference. Uh, so, Tony, you've explained this, uh, this perhaps difference that you have around the importance or the definition of collaboration. Are there other areas where you've set out your stall in a very specific way? So think about the difference between, say, one-to-one -one coaching. Um, you know, there's a, a growing trend, but certainly I've seen a lot of large organisations realise the benefits of coaching as a skill set and have been training their, their leaders and their managers to use one-to-one -one coaching skills. What interests me is, okay, well, let's take the extension of that and actually start to think less about the individuals, which is where we started, really, less about an individual and, and how one develops that, That's, which is not to underplay that. You know, a critical role in the team development is to make sure you're nurturing each individual for the human being they are. But it's, again, that skill set and that mindset that occasionally pulls back and tries to see the whole and understand, right, how is this working? Where's it going? Where's it come from? How does it fit? So that one's looking at the team much more in a, in a hesitate to use a holistic way. Mm. And but uh, my experience, my personal experiences of the difference between one to one and and team coaching or team consultancy is the greater complexity of working with the whole team mm. because um, working with groups is messy and and that requires perhaps a greater amount of experience and training. Would you agree with that? Or what, what's your take on leaders' ability to do so, the... So one of the tools that I talk about in the book um, is to develop one's what I'd call maturity and complexity. So maturity and complexity is about being able to see the big picture, understand the whole, be able to give, uh, you give your team context for what's going on, 
Um, it's ability to understand your emotions. Not to, you, we can't control our emotions, but we can manage them and we can learn to get better at managing them. And that, again, from a leadership point of view in terms of what people see, the degree to which you're able to stay calm in, in difficult circumstances is a crucial component of that, that team coaching mindset. Attached to that, you know, particularly when we get into complexity, is being able to take a systemic perspective so you're not just looking at cause and effect. You're not taking the simplistic view that said, well, that went wrong, so that must be the problem. It's actually, no, what is the problem? Let's pause for a moment. What could it be? What's causing that? Then there's a, a fundamental component, which is, is, okay, things are changing all the time, so let's keep on pausing. Let's get back to my sense and react. Pause, think, reflect. Right, what are we going to do differently? The reason I call it maturity and complexity is that it's not something that you go on a course and go, right, I've cracked it. You know, maturity is, to me is one of the few advantages of ageing. But I know plenty of 60-year-olds who aren't very mature. You know, it's something that, you know, it takes practice. You've got to apply it. But I do think that it's, it's, a, it's a survival skill for the 21st century. I know that you have, and many of our listeners will know that you have considerable expertise and experience in very large, in the delivery of very large projects involving multiple stakeholders. So multiple teams coming together and interacting, contracted in different ways, possibly very different from very different organisations and government bodies. What could you say about the work you do in that space where you're delivering something over possibly many years, spending enormous sums of money uh, and the, the multitude of different groups that are, are coming to bear on solving that problem. The basic rules apply to, and the, the tools, methodologies we've been talking about apply to, to all teams, but each as subunits. The real challenge then is to what extent can the, the programme leadership actually maintain the right narrative, you know, the aligning narrative, maintain engagement, and crucially, in terms of where do we spend our time on those, those kind of programs, it's managing the interfaces between different groups. Humans have an amazing capacity to fall out with each other, um, particularly in gangs, so that our gang is different. We define ourselves by the gang that we can see. And the, the money that gets wasted in minor squabbles, issues that really shouldn't escalate into conflict, but just the right relationships weren't set up from the start and then weren't maintained and so that's where we spend most of our time but the process remains the same lovely thank you so in summary tell it say say a few more words about how somebody listening to this now want, could take some of these ideas into their workplace but first of all around mechanics and mechanism what could somebody do who's leading a team or maybe even just attending a team meeting tomorrow do differently or suggest that happens differently from a mechanics point of view? So one, one of my favourites is a very simple one, which is at the end of each team meeting, just say, right, let's just have a reflection, reflection point. What have we just been doing? What's working? What could we do differently? Now, what should we do differently? The point is, it's the question, what could we do differently? And it's engaging the team to draw out from them yeah, but I'm interested in what you think. So what that requires is, you know, it, it's stimulating and getting your team used to the fact that we work in a thinking environment, not a telling environment. And a thinking environment, again, there's you know, some very practical uh, methodologies. And for example, one of the, the best ways I've found of creating a thinking environment is a group of, say, five, six people, 
everybody has a thought. So, right, what just happened? John, Jim, Jane. We walk around, go, go around the table. Everybody gets their two or three minutes without interruption. Now, it's amazing when you give people the space and they know they can think without interruption, that different thoughts come out. It's an amazing book by a woman called Nancy Klein. Again, I'd highly recommend. She talks about time to think. But it works so well on a practical level when you can actually give people that space and they know they've got that space. And if there was one tool from your 55 toolkit book, or maybe not, maybe another tool that, that you've, you've come across since then, if there was one thing that a team leader could do with their team on their next offsite or the next half-day strategy meeting that they have, what might that be? I would go into what are our rules of engagement? So there's a tool I talk about, which is you know, how to do that, which is just to draw out, well, what worked on the last, the last great team you worked for, the last great project you worked on, last great organisation you worked with. Let's have some stories about that. And from those stories, we pull out, well, what worked and what didn't work? Right, OK, that worked, that worked. We shouldn't be doing that, should we? No. OK, what are our rules now? And in an hour, you can get great stories. People love listening to stories. And stories are a great way of introducing perhaps a slightly uncomfortable concept like not turning up late for meetings without accusing somebody, without suggesting it, and it being, well, because John always turns up late. So am I having a go at John? Well, no, not if I'm using a story. Tony, it's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you today. I know we've only really touched the surface of your work and practice, but uh, but um, there are books which I'll mention shortly that people can uh, find out more about the conclusions that you've um, come to. But thank you so much for your time today and for coming and sharing uh, some of your ideas with us. Oh, it's been really enjoyable. Thanks for having me. The interpersonally dynamic Tony Llewellyn. Many thanks for his time today. And if you'd like to learn more about Tony's approach, why not pick up one of his three books, Performance Coaching for Complex Projects, The Team Coaching Toolkit, and Big Teams, The Key Ingredients for Successfully Delivering Large Projects. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out the show notes for more information about today's guest, and the topics covered. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, do give us a like, rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. I'd like to thank today's studio engineer at Spiritland Studio King's Cross, Tom Ross. Our researcher is Ella Halsell. Today's studio producer is Adrian Dangor. And the series producer is Ollie Giu. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.